It's my favorite plague. Mm -hmm. We know plagues are bad, but this is the name of the podcast. It's my favorite plague. I'm Elise Sardowino. And I'm Jeffrey Todd Knuckles, and welcome to My Favorite Plague. Doing our part in this most recent plague, we bravely stayed home and watched television. Discovering a fascination with plagues, we also kept discussing what our behaviors during a plague said about us and our society. We thought you might enjoy this conversation as well, so every episode, we pick a plague and each present our favorite thing about that plague. After presenting our favorite thing, we discuss what we think it all means. We have created uh, discussion boards on our website, myfavoriteplague.com, so we can hear your opinions and ideas. Too soon? We don't think so. Probably too late, if you ask us. What plague is this? Hi, I'm Brent, and I'm here to tell you about Cocoletsli, the plague from the 1500s that almost wiped out the Aztecs. While definitely made worse by the awful effects of Spanish colonialism, this disease would be plenty bad no matter what. Descriptions from the time include symptoms such as high fever, severe headaches, vertigo, black tongue, dark urine, dysentery, severe abdominal and thoracic pain, large nodules behind the ears that often invaded the neck and face, acute neurologic disorders, and profuse bleeding from the nose, eyes, and mouth with death frequently occurring in just three to four days. And now it's time for Todd and Elise to discuss their favorite things about Coco Leetsley. And now it's time for Elise. Welcome to the episode of My Favorite Plague about Coco Leetsley. Or the Coco Leetsley episode of My Favorite Plague. Probably better. Yeah. Okay. Right. We'll go with that. We Before we start the actual meat of the podcast, I have to have a word about <laughs> pronunciation. Are you laughing because I said meat? <laughs> meat. Okay. Um, I have to say a word about pronunciation and terminology. Todd and I spent some time with Google pronunciation, and we're going to try to get the pronunciation as close as we can but it's not going to be perfect. Also, terminology is a bit of an issue. The word Aztec is a colonial word. It's not a word that any of the people we now refer to as Aztecs use to refer to themselves. Mexica is probably a little more accurate, but it was not a homogenous group of people that were all called Mexica. They pretty much referred to themselves, from what I understand, by the town that they lived in. Um, there were also called the uh, Nwa, Nwa, Nawa, Nawa, the Nawa, and the others Nawat, and the language is Nawat, which is the language we now identify as Aztec. So there's not a really great word to refer to this group of people, mainly because it's probably not super accurate that they were a large homogenous group of people, the way we now say. Americans or Mexicans 
does encompass a really diverse group of people who happen to be living in the same continent. So we're going to use Mexica and Aztec somewhat interchangeably, but know that none of it is particularly correct. It's impossible to talk about Coco Leachley without talking about Spanish colonialism. Ostensibly there to spread Christianity, the Spanish had a little side business in getting rich off the labor and resources of the indigenous people. Super cool guy Hernan Cortez is credited or blamed for defeating the Mexica in 1521, but truthfully, he could not have done it without the indigenous enemies of the Aztecs. As a reward for their efforts, one of the city-states that would help the Spanish against the Aztecs became one of the first groups of people to come down with Coco Leachley. And it's very clear that this disease wiped out indigenous people at a far, far greater number than it did the Spanish. The worst Coco Leachley outbreaks were from 1545 to 1548, which is well into the colonial period. And... Before saying anything else about that, I have to say that a lot of the literature cautions against this virgin soil theory, which is the belief that the indigenous people didn't have any natural antibodies against the diseases that the Spanish brought and were therefore more susceptible to it. This is possibly true, especially in the beginning, but it really takes responsibility away from the Spanish colonialists and how brutal and difficult colonial life was, and that that had a far greater impact on how severe Coco Leachley was than not having any natural resistance to the disease. Um, one of the sources at the time says that the factors of importance were social dislocation, increasing demands among the Indian population for labor, and a deterioration in nutrition. Additionally, the indigenous people experienced sexual exploitation, as well as being forced into a way of living that was completely different from how they had lived for generations. It's possible that the conditions, had the conditions of colonialism not been so brutal, Coco Leachley would have been far less deadly and destructive for the Mexica. It's also worth noting that the colonialists blamed the Mexica for their increased vulnerability. And they took it as a sign from God that the Spanish were doing the right thing in taking this land and trying to Christianize these uh, heathens. Yeah, that seems to be a, a popular th thing when, if you study uh, history, I remember reading a thing about, um, par pardon me, no. I remember reading a thing about uh, slavery and uh, there were uh, slave owners who uh, questioned for a moment, um, gee, this seems wrong uh, uh, to be doing this and owning another person and etc. seems wrong. But if it was truly wrong, then God would give me a sign. Right. Uh, something along. So similar. Right. Right. And they also really felt this evangelical belief that Coco Leachley was a sign that the, the the increased vulnerability of the indigenous people was a sign that Christianity was some kind of shield to protect them. And um, this one friar said, and I quote, God is telling us you are hastening to exterminate this race. I will help you wipe them out more quickly. And it was such... You thanks, know, God. Yeah, thanks. And if you think that, you know, capitalism is bad now, they also believed that God was creating financial opportunities for them by exterminating the Aztecs. 
even the more sympathetic religious men of the time thought that Coco Leetsley was a deliverance from the harsh treatment of the colonialists. So, um, it's also helpful to remember that Spain needed the resources of Mexico to fight their European wars and specifically to fight against Protestantism. And so the silver from South American mines really funded that effort. And so it made the abuse of the Aztecs kind of more easy to rationalize because it was all in service to a holy war. Uh, Grand. Yeah, it is grand. Um, And, you know, prior to colonialism, the Mexica had a strong culture. They had well-established educational system. Boys and girls would be initially educated by their parents. And this was destroyed with the and put in what was put in place was this really basic and limited uh, Christian church education. Even their kind of cornerstones of religious life, the taking of mushrooms, the, the their use of amaranth, uh, their burial practice, even their ways of measuring time were all taken away by the Spanish. And so these normal supports and rituals, cultural supports that might have helped them deal with Coco Leetsley, uh weren't there anymore. So defeated, you know, exploited, dislocated, they didn't have much to help them stay alive when Coco Leetsley began spreading. All that seems really great, really fun. And so you have to ask, as I did when I was reading this, what in the hell could possibly be my favorite thing? Well, here it is. I had to dig pretty deep. But as awful as all this is, and although numbers, specific numbers are hard to come by, it's between 7 to 17 million people were killed. The Mexica fought very, very hard to keep their culture alive. The Franciscan friars worked with the Mexica to teach them Spanish, and they were teaching them Spanish to try to teach them Christianity. But the Aztecs used this as a way to keep their culture alive. And in our resources, we have links to the what are called the Aztec Codices, and they're beautiful. You really need to check them out. It's amazing. Yeah, they're definitely, I mean, I guess if there's anything that I suppose is my favorite thing out of all this, it would be the Codices that I've seen. But I have other favorite things that I, uh, that I need not- to mention as well, but I couldn't. I I couldn't dig too much into the codices. Well, and they're not necessarily a favorite thing about Coco Leetsley. They're a favorite thing of Aztec culture. Voila. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. that. But they are really a great discovery, I guess, in our research. And it's, it's pretty. It's that. It's a. It's an entire subject within itself. Within itself, yeah. It's you could. An we could enormous, big, long thing. Maybe yeah. do a member podcast on the codices. They're just amazing. We also have in our resources section a video that's a recreation of how they made the codices from tree bark, and it's it's astonishing. I would highly recommend you check that out. So they originally would make these books, Tira, and tell the story in pictures. And then with the training of the Franciscan friars, they added words to the story to make sure it wasn't lost to time. They're gorgeous, complex. They're a history, a combination of history, religion, science, reporting, and philosophy. I guess when 80% of your people die and your culture is in disarray, you don't have a lot of choices and assimilation is probably the only way forward. But you don't have to lose everything. And one really touching piece of evidence is an archaeological dig in a location famous for being a site of Mexica resistance to the Spanish. After a three-month-long siege in this spot, the Mexica eventually fell to the Spanish, but they refused to give up their tradition. 
A bracelet with shells, small knives, and a coyote figurine were found on the site, and they were believed to be traditional funeral office offerings that were buried along with seven bodies, three adults and four children. The ar archaeological evidence points to a continuation of culture, despite the destruction of colonialism and disease. And not for nothing, but uh, these are the Nuwata words that we still use to this day. Avocado, chocolate, coyote, peyote, guacamole, chipotle, tomato, and mezcal. Talk about favorite things. I mean, that's a culture that I think you really want to preserve and really shows how much we lost. And chocolate is one of the most popular things in the world. Right. And uh, uh, talk about culture that we lost. I think that um, most people think most people think of fine chocolate as a European thing. I guess yeah. that's a little one act play in colonialism, isn't it? There you go. Yeah. Great. Yay. So that is my favorite thing that uh, talk about devastation. It was complete devastation, but they still managed to keep it alive. They still knew their culture had value and they worked really hard to do so. And that's, uh, I guess, in a situation like this, the best that you can hope for. No, that's great. Okay. So I have a question for you. Uh, you mentioned the Aztec schools. Can you tell me a little bit more about their schools? You seem to talk about their importance. And uh, is there any more information on that? There's a lot of information about that. And I've included some Aztec art about the schools, but it's pretty interesting. Education was really important. Um, they were primarily educated at home initially. And then when they got into their early teens, they went into, basically, there were four different ways you could go. Two for girls, two for boys. And so if you were sort of up a crust, you would go to one group of schools. And if you were more working class, you would go to another group of schools. And a lot of the education was around preserving Aztec culture, rituals, religion. A lot of it was around warfare, how to fight. Um, for the girls, it primarily was around dancing, culture, home, uh, child rearing, how to, you know, maintain an Aztec home, I guess. So it was really, but it was really structured and there was a lot of tradition and it was done. It was considered a very important part was this education. It wasn't just teaching sort of as a, like in a lot of cultures, an apprenticeship kind of thing where you would learn from somebody. It was very structured. It had ages. It had different groups and different um, goals for each kind of education. But make no mistake about it, learning how to kill people in war was a big part of it. And even some of the Aztec wars were not wars at all, but they were sort of practice runs for their students. And so they would stage these raids as a way for these young Mexica men to learn how to fight in a battle. And that was part of their school, which is kind of amazing. It was your school like that? No, we didn't study stabbing, <laughs> <laughs> taking stabbing. That was mostly an amateur I'm, thing. I'm taking stabbing this, this <laughs> semester. Who have you got for stabbing? <laughs> I got old man Horton for stabbing this semester. I hear he's really tough. So, yeah, I mean, and so I just wonder what happened to the Aztecs when all of that was taken away. And the only thing it was replaced with was... Disease. Disease. Mm -hmm. And 
prayer. Mm, yeah. Christian prayer. And now it's time for Todd. I'm going to talk about my stuff, my favorite thing about the plague. I'm going to uh, dig into dig into some archaeology. Pardon the pun. Oh, I just got that. Yeah. So prior to the archaeological dig, I'm going to tell you about uh, the specific disease that Coco, uh, that caused Cocolitzi was unknown. Um, and there was uh, speculation that it would be smallpox and measles and typhus, but none were a perfect match for the symptoms. And there's an excellent article that came out in 2002 called Mega Drought and Mega Death in 16th Century Mexico. Mega Drought I, and, and Mega, mega death. death. I know, it sounds Woo! like it, it was published in a junior high newspaper. Um it made a convincing argument for the indigenous hemorrhagic fevers transmitted by rodents and exacerbated by severe drought cycles. And this became the prevailing theory until the archaeological dig that I'm going to tell you about. In an article in 2018 from Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, there are results of an archaeological dig in Oaxaca, Mexico, uh, which had been the site of an ancient population, uh, popula ancient city populated by the Mistec, who are a group of people who were subjects of the Aztec Empire. So here an empire, there an empire, everywhere an empire, empire. <laughs> uh, this dig excavated 24 skeletons from the first Cocolitzi outbreak in 1545, and five skeletons from 100 years previous. Uh, this provided two good comparison groups for both before and after Cocolitzli. So this really, the cool part of this is that the disease uh, that kills you can be stored inside your tooth. They drilled into the teeth of the skeletons and got the DNA. They sequenced the DNA and started comparing strands. And what they found was Salmonella enterica, and it was a type uh, that could cause bacterial infection typhoid fever. The team found salmonella in 10 of the remains dating to the outbreak, but not in five of the skeletons predating European contact. Plus, archaeological work from 2017 found the same type of salmonella in an 800-year-old Norwegian skeleton. That helps the argument that Europeans carried the bug to Mexico, potentially through livestock or human carriers. Once in the Americas, the bug would have leached into local food and water sources from feces or vomit from sick individuals, says mm. uh, this is from Heinrich Poinard, an ancient DNA researcher at McMaster University in Hamilton, Canada, who was not involved with the study. You're asking yourself, hey, Todd, what exactly is salmonella? Funny you should ask. <laughs> Salmonella is a bacterium that lives in the intestinal tract of animals and is usually contracted eating uh, by eating foods contaminated with animal feces. Oh. Um, just in case you needed to know, it manifests with diarrhea, abdominal cramps, and fever, and typically, excuse me, typically resolves itself in five to seven days. Given that the Aztecs had advanced sanitation systems, the breakdown of Aztec culture and the cramped, harsh conditions of colonial life would have likely contributed to the spit. However, it also it is also important to note that there was a practice of, of using human feces to fertilize agriculture that could have also contributed to the spread. They call that night soil. Mm. Mm, night mm. soil. Gardening at night. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
So, you know, you ask yourself, is this conclusive? Most experts, including the people responsible for the dig, say it's hard to tell if Salmonella was solely responsible for Coccolizzi. It could have been part of several infections paired with the, the poor living conditions. Other es- experts dispute the described symptoms, and they say it doesn't sound anything like Salmonella on record. However, others point to the massive amount of Salmonella in the blood. Uh, they're saying that the advanced infection could create the bleeding from every orifice described in the records. That sounds fantastic. I know. I've gotten into the really gross part. The gross part of plague. <laughs> yeah. uh, not the fun. No, there's the, there's the really gross. Um, right. Not the fun, zany part the, of the plague. The zany part, right. The Marx Brothers part of plague. Yeah, so, you know, was it the Europeans' fault? So the existence of Salmonella paratyphi, paratyphi C in Norway 300 years before it appeared in Mexico doesn't prove that Europeans spread enteric fever to native Mexicans, but it's reasonable. A small percentage of people infected with Salmonella paratyphi C carry the bacterium without falling ill, so seemingly healthy Spaniards could have infected Mexicans who lacked natural resistance. So, Todd, after all this uh, disgusting stuff, what's your favorite thing about... Is the disgusting stuff your favorite thing? No, no. The disgusting stuff is not my favorite thing. It's hard. This was a reading about Coco Lee. Uh, it was hard to find something that was that really popped out as my favorite thing. Yeah, it's so, a lot of it's a lot of it's a lot of misery. Misery. Um, yeah. My my. But my favorite thing about studying the Coco Lee was the DNA. Um, we now have. And the DNA is not is not a Cold War science. This is something that started to really be in use uh, in my lifetime, probably in the late 1980s. They, you know, they they use it a lot now for crime and to and to you know uh, free people that have been convicted of crimes, etc., and can and convict people of crimes. And I guess this is certainly something that someone could say is a crime. Yeah, uh, law and order <clears throat> would not exist if it wasn't for DNA. Yeah, it's all about dum dum bum. Kogalitsi, bum bum. So, but yeah, that we can we can get close to a a. This was a mystery for a really long time, and now we are closer to having a resolution to or, or an idea of what we think this was, and that's because of uh, of of the you know DNA evidence and and what we can do with with DNA, and that's amazing, and it's in your tooth, and you know they can this is from you know 600 700 years ago, and that's amazing to me. That's amazing to me, and so. I guess that's the if there's a favorite thing, it's that we now can find out probably what it was or get closer to it anyways. So and it's that's amazing good. that your DNA lives for that long. You die, but your DNA is essentially still alive. Yeah, that's amazing. That's yeah the that So yeah. part of you is still alive. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that kind of gets into, like, um, sort of... Uh, Metaphysical. Uh, uh, yeah, some kind of beyond uh, the... Yeah, some kind of religious aspect of something yeah. that something about you lives on, which is really interesting. I mean, Ugh. you know. Yeah. Mind blown! Yeah, I mean, it makes me, you know, it makes you think of science fiction, like, can someone be reanimated, you know, right. by their teeth, you know? Maybe. Yeah. 
bizarre. So it also sounds like we've got a little red alert here of uh, arguing scientific egos a little bit because it sounded like the one guy, the mega drought, mega death, Mm -hmm. had this fancy theory. And then the dig kind of upset that. Is there some? Uh, Well, there's two. So there's two pretty solid camps. So the the dig, the Salmonella dig, one of the people that wrote the uh, authors who who wrote the the article about the Salmonella dig, her name is Kirsten Boz. And uh, she said that the study, you know, there was a clarification. She was she wanted to clarify that it just said that there was salmonella, that salmonella was present, and that it was not definitely the cause. She was saying salmonella was present, and it it looks like it wasn't present before the Europeans. So it sounds like she had to make that clarification. She had to make that clarification because when her art, when their article came out, the guy, <clears throat> the main guy behind the mega drought and mega death, his name is uh, Rudolfo Acuna Soto. He said that their article only proves that Salmonella was present and that Coccolitzli was definitely not Salmonella because the symptoms of Coccolitzli do not match the the symptoms of salmonella that these two uh symptoms don't match so he was a bit i suppose uh offended but well it would be a bummer you do this great study and then they do this dig and the fact is can't both be true yeah that's the whole thing is that you know uh, maybe you know a little from column a column b you know right uh um and i'm not a DNA, an ancient DNA scientist. You're not? I'm not an ancient DNA scientist. I don't know that much about DNA anyways. Anyways, wow. that's my favorite thing. Scientists, they're just like you and me. Only. Smarter. Well, they work harder, maybe. I don't they, know. They do work harder. They have more stuff. And they have more stuff. They have more stuff to work But with. they still have? They got like feuds. test tubes and everything. They're feuding, though. Just like people. Yep. Regular people who yep. aren't scientists. Mm-hmm. What does it all mean? What does it all mean? What does it all mean now? What does it all mean? What does it all mean? What does it all mean now? As Todd and I had discussions about what we thought it all means, the discussion kept coming back to, did colonialism win? Did Coco Leedsley help the Spanish colonists eradicate Aztec culture. And they certainly didn't eradicate it. There's a lot of evidence that Aztec culture still exists. I mean, we still use um, Aztec words in the English language. There are Nahuatl speakers right now in the United States and in Mexico. It may not be their primary language, but they're fluent. There's a lot of Aztec pieces that exist still in culture today. The Aztec tourism in Mexico. Yeah. There's people go there specifically to see the pieces of Aztec culture that still exist. And the capital of Mexico is the same as the Aztec capital of the Aztec empire. So. Right. But uh, I will say on the other hand, uh, you know, um, the Aztec religion is now by most people, I would imagine, considered to be not much more than mythology, whereas Catholicism is 
you know, considered to be a serious religion. Um, and, uh, you know, the, they speak the Spanish language. And I'm sure that they are quite proud of their Spanish heritage, or at least a lot of them are. I'm sure they are, you know. So on that sense, they did kind of uh, uh, dominate culturally, you know. Yeah, they, they I Googled 100% dominate. I Googled it, and 80% of Mexico is considered Catholic. I mean, I'm not sure how well-researched that is, but the number's got to be pretty close to that. 80% of Mexico considers themselves Catholic. I'm not sure what the other 20% is, but I don't think the other 20% is Aztec. Right. When your culture is largely in a museum or a history book, it, you know, the other guys won. As much as we want to say that culture is still around, and it is still around, it's not the dominant culture by any stretch. And I think that it's important from your story that the DNA is still alive. There's still stories to be told. There are still stories to be told. They can figure out what happened to these Aztecs. And there are people walking around with Mexica DNA. Right. And, you know, and that's, and this is still like essentially in its infancy, you know, this is a, this is not, this is just the beginning of of DNA research and ancient DNA research. Right. So there may be a lot more of that story to be told. But in the research, I found out that Montezuma's daughter became Spanish nobility and her descendants are part now of European royalty. And that seems to tell the tale of assimilation and the domination of European culture. It doesn't get much more assimilated than that. And chocolate may have been an Aztec word, but chocolate is not considered widely as an Aztec product. Right. So, sorry, I think this episode is a bit of a bummer but it's the reality coco leetsley and plagues in general which i think is another aspect of what we think it all means is that coco leetsley and other plagues shaped the population they shaped who survived and the fact that the aztecs were far more vulnerable to coco leetsley and that they were the ones being colonized, those two things went hand in hand, and they did not come out on top. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's hard, to, I think, to try and paint a, a smiley face on uh, something like this. It would be a disservice to the story. Uh, you know, the good thing, uh, DNA technology, at least my, my good thing, right. DNA technology. And the other good thing, it's not completely gone. But the tale itself is more tragic than anything Shakespeare ever dreamed up, and it is not great. That's just it. I'm sorry. That was really trite. But it, there's no, like you said, there's no way to paint a smiley face on it. And the research just was really hard this time. It was really hard to read, and I imagine it was significantly harder to live through. Right. There you go. So that is, sadly, what we think it all means. Um, I really encourage you to look at the codices that we have the links for online. And there's a great movie that we're going to do a member podcast on, partially on that, 
called The Other Conquest. It's great. It's free on YouTube. And I think that there's a lot to still discover about Aztec culture, obviously. But uh, the colonialists did what they set out to do. There we are. Yeah. So that is what we think it all means. That's right, folks. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of My Favorite Play. We'd really like to thank Brent, who did a great job introducing the single most difficult to pronounce plague we'll probably come across. Make sure you visit myfavoriteplague.com, become a member, get lots of extras, and make suggestions for future podcasts. I know this particular episode was a little depressing, but don't worry. The next episode on smallpox is full of excitement and positive good vibes and good news. Seriously. Thanks again and have a lovely and play free day.